Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Adam Gopnik, whose latest book is At the Stranger's Gate, Arrivals in New York. This is, I believe, the 10th book. There's Paris to the Moon, Through the Children's Gate, The Table Comes First. There are two works of fiction, The King in the Window, The Steps Across the Water, Angels and Ages. Its subtitle is A Short Book About Lincoln, Darwin, and Modern Life. And I thought that was the most cleverly ironic title imaginable. How could you write a short book about Lincoln, Darwin, and Modern Life? But nobody caught the irony that I could tell, Richard. (laughs) Mr. Gobnig has written a short book about Lincoln, Darwin, and Modern Life. And there's The Table Comes First. Uh, And I want to talk a little bit about that, but mostly we're going to talk about two things, uh, At the Stranger's Gate and what you've been doing at The New Yorker on these daily comments for Mm -hmm. the past couple of months. And I assume that when you get back to New York after the tour, you'll continue with them. Not when I get back to New York. I've been writing on planes on, on the tour, and I should have something out tomorrow. What prompted you to begin the daily comments? You know, I've written Notes and Comments, the New Yorker's version of an editorial, for a long time. I've been there for 31 years now. And it's a format that's evolved over time. When I first started it, it was very much a kind of small comic essay with a political point in its end. Now, Jonathan Schell and other people had treated it more somberly, certainly, over the years. But it's become a more pointed, for me, my writing of it used to be, I hope, had a lighter touch. I hope it still has a light touch stylistically, but like so many people, I've been stirred, motivated, transformed, energized, terrified by the politics in the United States of the last five years, not just the ascent of Trump, but before that, the uh, sequence of gun massacres. I became indignant and concerned, and I wrote a great deal about gun control and wrote regularly about it. And then with the rise of Trump last year, I it's a weird thing to be in any way boastful about, but I was, I think, more urgent in apprehension that what was going on was a national emergency, that he had every opportunity to win, and that what we were dealing with was not a kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger to the power of four, but real indigenous American fascism. And I said that loudly to no effect, but... You know, we don't write political things, I think, in order, simply in order to have effect. We write them in order to bear witness. And I wanted to bear witness with as much urgency as I could to what I was seeing. It was, this is the least interesting thing about it to anyone but me, obviously, Richard, it was a stylistic departure for me, too. It was not a a tone or a voice that had been very much in my arsenal before. But it has become that now. And I'm going to continue writing them. I, I believe that we're in the middle of a genuine historic national emergency and that everything we do that normalizes that emergency is to use the single most hackneyed metaphor in the history of the world, like the frog in boiling water, you get more inured to it every day and you should not. So that's why I've been writing so much political stuff recently. A friend of mine uh, gets on Facebook and always writes, never normalize. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the odd thing about it too, in a way, and it's something that I've been talking about when I talk to people about this new book, this 
book, At the Stranger's Gate, is very much a work of reminiscence and memoir. It's implicitly political, as everything one writes about social experiences, but it's not explicitly political at all. I could have written it or published it pretty much in any time, in any political moment. But it seems to me that writers have duties both as citizens. When you're a journalist, that's effectively what you are. You're a citizen with a typewriter. And your duties as a citizen are one thing, and your duties as a writer, perhaps, I hope, as an artist. To be honest with you, Richard, I felt a little weird, frankly, about publishing this book, which I'd been writing for a long time at The Stranger's Gate, at this moment. And I feared it would seem discordant at this time. And I convinced myself, if no one else, that in fact it was political in another way. That is, it's about how we build up value in life, how we build up meaning in life. And it's exactly value and meaning that are under assault right now. A couple of points. First off, um, KPFA just added a 5 to 6 a.m. political show replacing a music show. Uh Part of that has to do with an increase in uh, drive time. Mm -hmm. But one of the comments that came back from a listener was, oh, God, another political Mm -hmm. show, another hour of depression. (laughs) And I kind of get that because we're so overwhelmed on a daily basis. You know, a few days ago, I took my blood pressure. It was too high, and I freaked out, and I realized I can't live my life focusing just on what's going on. I, I think that's right, Richard, but I would add to it or amplify it by saying that it's not. It's, for me, it's not just that we need escapes, though obviously we're human beings. We need escapes from the pressures of political crises. It's also that that's the way we build value. The night that Trump was elected, and I wrote about this the next morning, my 17-year-old daughter, Olivia, was traumatized. There's no other word for it. As so many 17-year-olds and 70-year-olds as well, but particularly 17-year-old girls who felt themselves and their values under assault, was in a state of shock. And I took her, and we walked round and round and round the block that we live on in New York. And I said to her, listen, baby, this is terrible news. This is not something you know that I wanted. This is something I fought against. But let's remember as I said to her, Barack Obama didn't cut your sandwiches. You know, that's not what the national government does. We're going to make our lives. And the only way that we get the values we believe in is by building them upward and outward from the communities that we make. So our obligation now is to (laughs) dine with our friends, stand up for our causes, affirm what we believe is decency, and not to be overwhelmed by things that are happening far from us. And I really believe that to be true, Richard. I didn't just mean those as words. And I think it's something that we all in the past year have had to look at hard. What am I doing in my life to build community? What am I doing to build a value? And I'm meaning. So in a weird way, this book, uh, though set in the 1980s at a time when Donald Trump had just, you know, it's, it's funny when you finish a book, one of the things you do is you, obviously you regret all the mistakes you made mistakes of literary strategy, I mean. But you also realize the things you didn't write about. And what's weird is that there's a chapter in this book about my first real grown-up job, which was at GQ magazine back 35 years ago. And I remembered after the book was done and printed that when I was at GQ, we did the very first cover story ever published about Donald Trump. It was his first emergence from the murk of New York real estate. And what was so weird about it, Richard, is that at the time, he seemed to represent a certain kind of brash and if not admirable, then at least entertaining energy that had returned to New York after the depression of the 1970s. So it just goes to show you that you can't recognize a pathogen on its first appearance. There's one other pathogen going on. It's a subtext which is never mentioned, curiously, 
for me, maybe maybe it was not in your mind in at the Stranger's Gate, Adam Gopnik, and that's that this occurred during the Reagan years. And Ronald Reagan, the philosophy of Ayn Rand, the money first concept, mm-hmm. all took hold during those years. And while you never mention Reagan or Rand, it clearly played a role in your observation of the art scene and how the art scene turned from art to commerce. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the background. And there's actually one explicit reference in the entire book to Reagan. It comes up early in the first chapter. And it's that the paradox of the time was that everybody had thought that genteel manners and right-wing politics were allied. And so as I make a joke that In 1960, Lenny Bruce was arrested for saying an obscenity here in California. I don't even think I can say it now on the radio. And by the time Ronald Reagan was president, anyone could say that obscenity in any comedy club in California. Or, as I say, by the time you could say that obscenity in any comedy club in California, Ronald Reagan was president. In other words, that our assumption that there was a connection between the liberation of the mind and the voice and the ascendancy of progressive politics turned out to be false, that it was possible for the country to take a radically right-wing turn politically and still remain on an oddly libertarian path uh, culturally in another way. And that you're quite right, that where everything met, where those two paths met, was at the counting house at Fort Knox. But it was one of the contradictions of the 1980s, the period I'm writing about, is exactly that those two things were going on simultaneously. The country was becoming less and less genteel, and it was also culturally and it was also turning more and more reactionary politically. In that context, I still remember getting on an airplane, talking to a person, we were talking about a movie that was terrible, and the response was, how could that be? It's the number one box office film. That wouldn't have happened in the 70s. It's funny you mentioned that. I was just thinking about this morning, Richard, because you know what the breaking point on that is in lots of ways was Heaven's Gate, you know, Michael Cimino's movie. And what was so strange, if you remember Heaven's Gate, which was really a kind of pivot moment was Which just now considered, considered a, a great classic yeah. and, and fairly so I mean it has its faults I, I but it's seen it since but um, Richard Brody who's our in-house movie maven thinks it's one of the greatest American movies Richard is a man of immense knowledge and sometimes eccentric taste the point I was going to make is is that if you look back on that now the movie critics of that time absorbed the values of the Hollywood system in other words they reviewed the budget and never reviewed the movie and it took 30 years for anyone to really see the movie and that was you're talking about the change from American movies in the 70s to the 80s, I think that was the the pivot that it turned on, that everyone, including the critical establishment, absorbed the values of the dollar at that point. Well, we also saw that change where I don't recall, certainly in the 70s, but it began in the 80s, the top 10 films. Now, we always had the top 10 music, right? though the numbers were never given, obviously, right. probably because of payola. Right. <laughs> but we never saw the top 10 grosses of books, of film, and so in some respects, the connection was if you don't know that stuff, you tend to think of quality, but if you do know it, there's this other factor, and that changed in the 80s. It it did, and that's the kind of change that I'm trying to chronicle in that book. Now, as you say correctly, the place I saw it firsthand was in the art world, in the art village of Soho, where I happened to live um, for slightly comical reasons in the 1980s. But yes, and you saw that, and you saw the way that... Now, I, you know, I will say, and it's one of the things I try and do in the book, is it's a complicated picture. The, it was an, an easy, moralizing way to see it. And for instance, my 
friend, uh, Robert Hughes, who figures in the book, did see it this way. Simply, money was corrupting art. Young artists were in it for the money, not in it for longevity or for the muse. I don't think that was fair. I don't think it was true. I've, all the young artists I knew were just as devoted to the pursuit of art as any generation had been. What had altered is, is that money had become, in so many ways, their subject. Money had become the landscape that they had to picture. The nature of their art was warped by the culture that they were living in. Or another way of putting it is, is it wasn't so much warped as it took the form of that culture. Art in any period will always do one thing extraordinarily well. It will trap the time that it's living in. So if you go to look at Baroque art in Rome, you see an awful lot of lurid martyrdoms, right? Now, I am right. against lurid martyrdom as a positive value, but those are the values of the Counter-Reformation. If you go to Florence and look at 15th century art, it's all about the intersection of the classical past and the uh, mercantile Florentine present. That was the material they had to work with. And so one of the things I try to say in the chapter about art in the 80s is, want to see what that time was about. Look at, I don't say admire, I say look at Jeff Koons's bunny or something like that, that famous chrome bunny. That's like the demon of Trump Tower right there. That's what the, the devil of Trump Tower looks like. And that's, I think, is the function of art. So I try not to be shallow or moralizing about it and try to be analytic instead. But the analysis will always lead you to the reality that this country changed dramatically in that period. A couple of chapters that kind of caught me. One was your friendship with Richard Avedon. Mm -hmm. This mention about a family called the Strunskys. Yes. And you make the comment that Avedon thought that Simeon Strunsky was somehow related to the Gershwins. It was English Strunsky. Ah. He was Ira Gershwin's brother-in-law. His sister was Lee Gershwin. And I interviewed him about the Gershwins. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so funny. You know, one of the things I did with this book is I wrote it from memory. It isn't a, uh, a chronicle of that time. It's a memoir. It's memories, memoirs of that time. So I didn't pursue it and find out. Dick Avedon, who was very much, for whom, as I say in the book, the Gershwins summed up as an idea everything that he valued in the world. Right. That, you know, intersection of Jewish energy and American popular culture and aspirations to high culture at the same time. So I didn't know that, but that is very cool. So Dick was right about that because he always said it. The Strunskys for him were this kind of idealized Jewish family. And you know, I actually knew one Strunsky, Anna Strunsky, who married Philip Hamburger, who was a colleague of mine, sort of was the oldest citizen at the New Yorker when I started there. She was Strunsky too, and a woman of immense elegance, exactly what you want a Strunsky to be. There's also Michael Strunsky, English's son, who runs the Gershwin Trust out of San Francisco. Is that right? And how did the name English come around, by the way? Is that like an Ellis Island name? I never asked him. I did not ask him. You do mention something, which is the accents, mm -hmm. that strange accent that we hear in films that Gershwin himself had, which is this weird Bostonian... British, slightly British, and Dick Avedon, uh, who's a kind of hero in this book, had it strongly. He was, if he, I always said, he would call my wife, Martha, he'd say, Martha, Martha, have you got the recipe for the risotto? They would rasp the R's and stretch out the vowels, Martha. They would both rasp and soften their R's. And it was a beautiful voice, and it was very particular to New York to uh, sophisticated New York Jews at that time. Leonard Bernstein, though, of course, he's Bostonian, had another version of it, but it was sort of the East Coast educated Jewish voice. It's gone now. It's vanished. All of us either talk 
like everybody else, and we talk like Mel Brooks. But it was a wonderful thing. What made Dick Avedon such a significant figure in my life and makes him a sort of symbolic figure in the structure of this book is that he represented all of those older aspirations to combine a career in popular culture, making money and making images, in his case, with aspirations to serious art, with a love of pleasure, with the worship of France. And so he came to be a kind of very much a father figure, but also a kind of a symbolic figure of a particular kind of New York that was passing and that he still represented. That New York, of course, also consisted of a very ugly and distorted Times Square. It consisted of feeling the need to wear sneakers when you were roaming the streets of New York. As I did for the better part of six years when I was writing Talk of the Town, the old Talk of the Town, which was kind of little... uh, character reporting pieces is my happiest period of my life, all anonymous stuff. Yeah, when we came to New York in 1980, it was at the height of what we think of as taxi driver New York. New York is hell. You know, the the steam rising from the manholes and the taxis clicking and the whores on 42nd Street and so on. So much so that when we arrived in the first month we were there, Martha, my wife, was making her career as a film editor. And she got a job syncing film at the Film Center on 45th and 9th Avenue, really right in the heart of the Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> and the first day she was there, they found a dead body in the dumpster. And so I thought, oh, my goodness, I'd better go pick her up, take her there and pick her up. It's unimaginable now. Now if you go to the same place in New York, I was teasing my kids about it. said, you know, now a dead body in a dumpster would be an amenity for hipster living. They would promise it <laughs> in some place in Brooklyn to bring it on. But, yes, New York seemed like a terribly dark place, though lit by a great deal of incidental beauty that was still going on. I love jazz. It's one of my great uh, passions. And you could still go here at that point, not for very much longer, but you could go here. Mabel Mercer and Ellis Larkins and Bill Evans' last set was played in the first month that we lived in New York. In all of those ways, as in any time, the one world was passing out and another world was coming into being. And I try to describe in this book my own intimations of what that new world was. In an interview, you were asked the question of what's the biggest difference between then and now? And you said, well, now it's the ubiquity of cell phones Mm -hmm. and communication that the entire infrastructure of information has changed. And I want to bring that back to the rise of Trump and fascism. Is there any connection? It's a deep question that I suspect people will be debating for for a very long time to come. I know it can seem a bit fatuous to say, oh, what's the biggest change? The smartphone. But it is an insanely large change. I don't think we can really quite reimagine the world in which we all walk around with an incredibly powerful little computer in our palm that gives us instant access to pretty much everything else in the world, including pretty much all the memory of the world. So I can call up any image that I want to. I can find out the meaning of any word that I need to, and I can be in touch with anyone. That's a fundamental change, and I think it's remade our minds and remade our culture. Now, the question is, has it been mostly for the good or mostly for the bad? I wrote a long piece for The New Yorker about five years ago. I'm at the age now, Richard, where everything happened five years ago. It may have been (laughs) 10 years ago, and it may have been two years ago, but everything feels like five years ago. And I wrote a piece called The Information, just trying to sort this out. And I said, you know, there were three camps, three interpretive schools. One was the uh, uh, the ever-wasers, 
which are the people who believe that nothing ever really changes, that, that all new technology gets assimilated, the, uh, the never-betters who say that the new technology opens up a door to utopia, and the, uh, the better-nevers, the better-nevers, <laughs> the people who said it was a disaster. I don't know exactly where I stand on it because I think it's like all complicated human things. They're complicated answers. I do think that there's no question that the narrowing down, the dumbing down, I know that's a cliche, but I think it's true, of discourse is a real thing. And it's to some degree, it follows on to that, you know, that there's something fundamentally obscene about the tweet as a unit of communication in a democracy. 130 words. I know from my own experience, I shouldn't complain because I'm privileged to write at length, but I know that inevitably, when you look at uh, Twitter feed on something you've written that's long and marginally nuanced, you see that everyone is seeking to reduce it to the next common denominator of simplicity. What's the takeaway from this? And interesting writing usually doesn't have a takeaway. It has several takeaways, and a couple of the takeaways probably negate the final takeaway. In that way, I do think that the reduction of information, the coarsening of information, has something to do with the rise of what I see as indigenous fascism. However, I said a moment ago that every con good conclusion has a contradictory conclusion. It's also the case that when fascism rose historically in the 1920s and 1930s in Europe, it was long before there was any such revolution. And at that time, people like uh, Theodore Adorno and Walter Benjamin and so on associated it with the rise of the old media, with the rise of the movies, with the rise of recorded music, with the rise of photographic reproduction, all of which seems to us now quite benign, right? We all long for the movies and the newsreel, and we, we think they're quite benevolent compared to Facebook and Breitbart and, and such things. We always have to immunize ourselves against too easy an answer by remembering that whatever the technology of any time is often gets the blame for the worst politics of that time. There's also the rise of, and I think it comes with the 130 characters, and I see it in myself, the rise of living in an OCD world where distraction, look, a squirrel, is no longer a distraction but part of daily life. My daughter, my 17-year-old, Olivia, had a lovely name for it. She said, we live in a glimpse culture. And it's true. We glimpse, we glimpse at everything. And of course, like everyone else, I'm a captive of it and a victim of it. It's so strange. You know, I'm out on the road and I get in a panic state if my iPhone is not charged, right? And really, like panicky. And I have to remind myself, I only got this damn thing eight years ago. And before I had it, I actually managed to live my life. Not only did I live my life quite well, I lived the, exactly the same life then that I'm living now. I functioned very well. I made my appointments. I hit my deadlines. I reached my friends. I comforted my children without its help. And so in some strange way, our dependency is as much emotional as it is practical. It's an addiction. It's truly an addiction in the same way that an addiction to a drug is an addiction. You don't need the drug, but you can't live without it. It's the paradox of drug addiction. Back in the 80s, a lot of the things that you do now on your phone, like the basic one is research, required real research. The other side of it, of course, is that research wasn't as glib and there were less lies. Well, maybe there were just as many lies, but I they came out were, differently. I, they, there were as many lies. It took you longer to fact check them, but then the paradox is, is we fact check them quickly and then we forget about the fact check just as quickly too. No, it's funny because one of the chapters in the book is my first sort of job in New York was uh, at a library, at the Frick Art Reference Library. And it was a bit of a mausoleum, but of course, in retrospect, even libraries have a certain glamour attached to them. 
You also spent some time, you don't go into it in too much depth, working as an editor at Knopf. Yes. Did you also do acquisitions? Sure. I bought a few books. I wasn't there for terribly long. It was sort of a brief stay before I went to The New Yorker. The one thing I did really well in publishing was write flap copy. I, I'm having, I think, a natural gift for a semi-shapely hyperbole, so that I was well-suited for that. I, as I say, my first real job was writing fashion copy, rewriting, rewriting, editing fashion copy. I try in this book, and it's sort of, for me, it was the kind of the gambit of the book, not to avoid the subject of things that seem like successes at all. What's interesting in life are failures and striving. That's always where the comedy of an existence is, and it's always where the universality of existence is. It's the stuff you didn't figure out, the stuff you got educated on, the stuff you failed doing that's interesting. And by the time you start having any kind of success, you become a bit of a bore. One of my favorite memoirists is uh, Clive James, the Australian-English one, and he's written, I think, six volumes of, of autobiography. And the first three that are about struggling to make his way in Australia and then even more in London are utterly delightful. And then the last three, which are about the travise of a successful writer, are much less interesting because success is not an interesting phenomenon. All that happens to you is you get another job and you meet more people. Getting another job and meeting more people isn't as interesting as facing the possibility of utter failure and humiliation at every moment. And being broke. And being broke. We were both completely broke, living on $3,500 a year for three years. And at every moment, we were aware that the bus that had taken us to New York City might very well be taking us back in defeat to Montreal, to Canada. And that gave a, an edge, uh, I hope, of poignance and certainly of absurdity to our existence. And I'd much rather write about absurdity and poignant moments rather than, uh, uh, and then I edited this book or met this famous writer. The beginning of the book is about your time at GQ, and it divides into two segments. The first is when you first got your job, and then afterward when everyone was fired and for some bizarre reason you, the only heterosexual <laughs> male there, stayed. <laughs> That first section kind of interested me because it was a completely different magazine and you're working with a lot of older gay men and you talked about the relationship of the older gay men who were still kind of living in that semi-closeted era where no matter how effeminate they were, they were closeted. And then the out, more recent people who on that level weren't effeminate but were out. Yes, it was a funny thing. You know, one of the things I tried to do in this book is put in kind of little mini anthropologies of the worlds I discovered in New York, the world of art, the world of literature, and particularly the world of fashion, which was dominated by gay men, of course. So it was an education for me. And exactly as you say, one of the things that struck me was that the older gay men on the staff were curiously, though they were quite overtly gay, they didn't like to be seen as being out. That They regarded it as extremely vulgar. And as I say in the book, basically they thought one of the things that made heterosexuality so vulgar is that heterosexuals were out all the time. They were displaying in this very vulgar way their sexuality. And that part of the stylishness of being gay was that you weren't waving your flag at every moment. That was not elegant to be doing that. Whereas the younger generation, that I, my, people my age, were both much more overtly out and yet curiously much less overtly gay in their manner, much less given to things that we think of for whatever reason as being part of a subculture. So there was a kind of weird kind of doubleness that the men who were the most closeted were also the most delightfully dandyish and uh, uh, sort of Oscar Wilde-ish, and the men who were the most open 
most open and out were the least so. And I found that to be interesting. What happened, of course, as I write, is that just at that moment when I was working there and having a new world open to me was when AIDS, which was at first called Gay Plague, I remember very well. Grid. Grid, yes, exactly, hit the world and, of course, was devastating to that community. So it was so strange, Richard, to go from being in the midst of this. One of the things that made GQ in those years kind of hilarious was it was a magazine run exclusively by gay men, read, read, I think, almost exclusively by gay men, and yet on every page it represented itself as straight with men and women together. (laughs) And what was so funny about it, Bruce Weber was the photographer, a great photographer, but that was how he worked. What was so funny is it was apparent, and talking about the the complexities of masquerading, it was apparent on (laughs) every page that it was gay, and the more overtly straight it became, the gayer it actually seemed. <laughs> and they were all aware of that, and that was part of the irony of, of it. But in any case, uh, AIDS hit. And when I look back um, just a few years ago at the masthead of the magazine when I joined as a blundering kid, I think almost every single person I worked with, every single man I worked with has died. We forget how devastating that plague was. And one of the many odd things about it is that horrific as it was, it played the strange role not of further isolating the gay community, but of actually through the, the, what can we call it, the brotherhood of suffering, the gay community became more assimilated, more accepted at the end of that period than they had been at the beginning. It also forced people out in places where they wouldn't be, and the human face came to the fore. The Rock Hudson phenomenon. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yes, I I think that's true. So it was a you know, a time, and I try to write about it with the right kind of distance. I'm not gay, and I can't pretend to under, you know, to have entered that world. But I try to write about it with some detachment, but certainly with as much deference as I can, because it was one of the places I got educated. When they made the switch of GQ, was right. that before or after AIDS hit, or just at the beginning? Right at, the, right at the beginning. It wasn't. That wasn't the reason that they did it. You know, right. in the 1980s, they were driven by one thing and one thing alone, and that was profit. So at the time of the turnover, everybody was still alive and no one was sick. Yes, yeah, as far as I can remember, yeah. This book came about because you were doing readings or storytelling at a place called The Moth? Yeah, about, again, five years ago, though. In this case, I really do think it was about 10 years ago. There's this wonderful storytelling group in New York called The Moth, and the premise of it is that people get up on stage without notes and tell 10, 15-minute-long stories about significant moments in their life. And what makes it interesting, apart from storytelling being interesting, is that it's always a mix of professional writers, Richard Price and Malcolm Gladwell, and truly people off the street who go into story jams and come together. So it's a very democratic form. They recruited me to do one. And somewhat to my surprise, I was annoyed at first because was I love doing it. And I love doing it in part because I'm a ham and I like the attention. But I also like doing it because it was analgesic for my own writing. The last couple of books I'd done, The Table Comes First and Angels and Ages, were very written. And I think, if I, in my own view, very well written. But they were very written. And I had become aware that through 30 years at The New Yorker, a certain kind of veneer had become part of my style. And I still love writing of that kind. I like writing that's writing. I like writing that's witty, aphoristic, epigrammatic, very New Yorker. <laughs> yes, all of those things. But that's why I chose to write at the New Yorker. It wasn't that I got shaped by the New Yorker. It was that was the kind of writing I thought I was good at, and there was one place where it, it might be rewarded. 
But I felt that I had lost a touch with a certain kind of simple narrative propulsion. And having to stand up there and tell stories for 10 minutes, you don't have time for a labyrinthian sentence or a Proustian turn. And it was hugely healing in that way. And it was only when I began to hear myself tell those stories. I had a kind of little repertory of stories that I'd been telling people at dinner tables. I believe that that's where literature begins. It's the stories we swap around the table about coming to New York, how I lost my trousers on my first day in town, how I had smuggled the uh, fashion boards home to get my wife Martha to tell me what the clothes meant, how I had been uh, given gallery talks at the Museum of Modern Art and developed a following, a very eccentric following. All those stories I'd often told. But when I told them on stage, they suddenly had the right voice or tone for me. For me, writing is all voice and tone because they had a slightly, I don't know what to call it, kind of Chagall-like feeling. They were little bits of kind of magic realist fables instead of just egotistical recountings of things that had happened. And once I had that tone, which was really the tone of a, someone speaking on stage or to other people, that's when the book began. So it was as much a stylistic discovery as it was a discovery about content in doing that storytelling. You do make mention in the uh, appendix at the end that some of this had been published in The New Yorker. and Yeah, usually, I, I'm giving away all my secrets here, Richard, but most of my previous nine books were essentially essays from The New Yorker. The Table Comes First is an example of that. Paris the Moon is an example of that. Not everything, about, I guess, 70% of Paris the Moon has been published in The New Yorker. But very often, I would be working on something for The New Yorker with the idea of turning it into a book, Angels and Ages, my book about Darwin, Lincoln, and modern life. I knew was, when I was writing those pieces for The New Yorker that I eventually had a book in mind to do. But in this case, I think much less of this book appeared in The New Yorker than anywhere else. But there are stories in within it uh, that actually were written in the 1980s. There's a sequence of stories in the chapter about Soho in the 80s, when it was still a village of art about things that happened in our building. Uh, our building started leaking blood, which turned out and to be rats. molasses. So we had an invasion, first of mice and then of rats. And those were all pieces that had appeared in New Yorker as they were happening and that I returned to and, and uh, blew a little dust off them <laughs> and, and, and restored them. And, and they, I was pleased when I reread them because they had the rapidity of instant apprehension, things that had just happened. You know, you must have been aware that some material from, say, Table Comes First and your other books is kind of going to leak in and you want to keep it out? or You try and get, you don't want to be, you know, be a bad businessman. An author is, runs a little business. You're selling the fish as my grandfather did, and you don't want to sell stale fish to your customers. But it's certainly themes, I, you know, at this point in my life, uh, like every writer, you know, I have so many pennies I rattle around in my tin cup <laughs> outside of Saks, and in, I have themes. You know, one of the themes of my work is the relationship of mouth taste to moral taste, how it is that we use food to express and articulate all of our passions and emotions. And there's a chapter in this book about how my wife and I, from the very time we moved out together, got married, have had one fight about rare and well-done meat that has carried us through life. Because it's my theory that in bad marriages, you have many fights. And in a good marriage, you always fight, but it's always the same fight over and over again. That's what makes it a good marriage. Ours is about rare. I'm a rare man. She's a well-done woman. Have, have you figured that out, that like you leave her stuff in just in a the, few more minutes? I do. I try to. And every night I say, I really tried to make this the way you like it. But <laughs> as I say in the, in the book, the key word in a good marriage is medium. Because <laughs> medium always slants over to medium rare or it slants back to medium well done. So we struggled. 
to strike a happy medium, so to be a, a median family. So that's you know very similar to stuff and themes that are in The Table Comes First. And certainly in another way, you know, and I know that you either relish this or you don't, uh, and obviously I do, I, what I do is I describe the manners of a bourgeois class at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century. That's what I'm apparently was sent to do. That makes some people extremely indignant, and it makes other people, uh, it entertains, I hope, and it's meant above all to be funny, but it's sort of one of the things that literature has done since the 18th century is it's been a tried to chronicle changing middle-class manners in mores as they've taken place, and that's very much one of the things that I do. The politics at The New Yorker, Adam Gopnik, first of all, how is it moving to the new building? This is my fourth building. I started work at The New Yorker at the original building, 25 West 43rd Street, which is sort of the legendary rabbit warren where Joseph Mitchell sat, and he did because I had an office next to him, typing mysteriously for 30 years and so on. That's where I started. Then we moved to across the street. Then we moved to Times Square. Now we're down in the new World Trade Center. I shouldn't say this. I kind of hate that building, and I don't like going down to the 9-11 Memorial. I wrote a piece about the 9-11 Memorial, which I think is a misbegotten enterprise, and that building sits right in the middle of it. So I'm not crazy about that trip. The truth is, as everyone knows who's ever worked in an office, the function of the, the job shapes the office more than the office shapes the job, and it still feels like the New Yorker. It's, you know mostly just silent, and it's people who do their work silently. In the building on Times Square, this giant room with offices all around, and in the center, all the fact-checkers. Yes, all the fact-checkers. The, the one thing I will say in the 30-plus years I've worked at The New Yorker is the one thing you can count is the fact-checkers always get smarter. They always get smarter. When I started, a lot of the fact-checkers were sort of a little bit like librarians. They were career people, people in their 40s and 50s who have been doing it for a very long time. They were very expert, unpretentious. As the years go by now, we seem to hire people who have got like four degrees in comparative literature, these unbelievably brilliant kind of planetary kids, you know, Iranians who grew up in, uh, in London or, and then emigrated to Cuba briefly or something. Unbelievable kind of global consciousness kids who know everything and who clearly spend their days thinking, why am I checking stuff by this idiot when I could do it so much better myself? And they're right. David Sedaris said that they actually called his neighbors on a humorous piece. But I'm, of course, more interested in fact-checking Jane Mayer because she, these days, has taken over the role of the primary investigative reporter. Right, what Cy Hirsch was for a while in our, in our yeah. history. And, and Why so, did Cy Hirsch leave? And I'm not being disingenuous. I honestly don't know. I'm not privy to that side of the magazine. I know that one of the things that David Remnick feels very strongly about is not publishing anything he's not absolutely confident is true. And one of the things that I do know is true is that with everyone, with Cy or Jane or whomever, if there's anything we're publishing that's uh, uh, at all controversial, David wants to know who said it, and he wants to know that it's right. He's quite passionate about that. He doesn't want us to ever be in the position. I think he, you know, he went to school as a very young man at the feet of Ben Bradley when he was at the Washington Post. And Bradley's attitude was always, we're here to publish the worst things we can find about people in power, but they damn well better be the right things that we're saying. I think that's very much David's, uh, David's attitude about it. And I think that, you know, as a consequence on some things, the fact-checking has to be fairly closely held, but everything, everything gets checked. When I interviewed Ariel Levy, I, I said, is, is Trump, do people talk about Trump at The New Yorker? She said, the problem is that that's pretty much all <laughs> anyone talks about. 
Well, I don't get to the office very much these days. It's a long schlep for me. So I stay at home in my boxers and write to loud rock music. I'm not a man you want to be around during the writing day. Yeah, I think that's true. I, you know, listen, Richard, I was telling everybody before everybody wanted to hear it that this was real and it was dangerous and he had every chance to win when everyone was saying, no, he doesn't have a chance. I think I knew that or sensed it just because I read a lot of history. And one of the things that history will teach you, history can misteach you many things and you can't take every lesson seriously. But one thing you will learn is that human beings in the first instance are tribalists. It's nationalism is the strongest force in the 20th century, far stronger than socialism, far stronger than capitalism. Nationalism is an incredibly powerful force. So someone offering an up-to-date nationalist, in this case white nationalist if you prefer, ideology to frighten people, wrongly frightened, but the Germans in 1929 were wrongly frightened in many ways. The Jews were 2% of the population, not even that. It has enormous power, and I think it's the delusion, if I may say, of the left, tragically, to imagine that nationalism or tribalism, wherever it appears, is simply a distorted form of economic hardship, that if we could all, you know, explain to Trump's voters that they're in the wrong boat, that we can make their lives better, we can, they can get medical care, and all of those, their, their economic problems will be solved, that we, you could then convert them to progressivism is, I think, the great delusion of the left. And of the mainstream media, which immediately afterwards started talking about these, they're good people. Yes, the pathos of the Trump voter, right? The right. pathos of the economically distressed and panicked Trump voter who never actually existed. This was a tribalized vote. Now, we have our tribe, and I, I don't mean to be accusatory in that way, but I do mean to accuse. That's the reality of what, we're, of what we're dealing with. And if you deny that reality, you're denying what's actually going on. You're denying the realities of history, too. It's a hideous tragedy, though, as I keep saying, the real phenomenon, the thing we should pay attention to is not so much what makes a Trump rise, is whatever kept the Trumps from rising. Because in, throughout the great, sad, and tragic swath of human history, for the most part, that's the way politics have proceeded. That is tribe versus tribe, nationalism versus nationalism, populist demagogue of one kind or another under one uh, mask or another against the next. The real question is, how do we, you don't have to be taught to hate and, and un, whatever Oscar Hammerstein said, you don't have to be taught to hate, you have to be taught to unhate. And how you do that teaching is the really difficult thing. I think you have to start by understanding there's a, a the white president, I think, appeared in the Atlantic by Tennessee yes. Coates. And to me, when I read that, it was an eye opener, absolute eye opener. Well, I, I'm not as pessimistic as Tennessee, who I greatly respect, is. And I'll tell you why, because I think that the right way to see the Trump phenomenon is as inseparable from the Obama phenomenon. That is, we're looking at a cycle of history. Barack Obama represented pretty much everything that is admirable in the American character and American tradition, uh, openness, tolerance, pluralism, ethnic mixing, sound family life. And Trump sort of crystallizes everything that's objectionable in American character and American history. And the only crumb of comfort I have to offer myself or my children or you is that Obama, with all of his virtues, was marginally successful in his politics in many respects. And I hope, I pray, that Trump, with all of his hideous failings, will be marginally successful in his politics as well. 
before we went on the air, you mentioned something called the History of the World in 100 Performances at Lincoln Center, was it? Yeah, that's a series that I've been conducting for the last two years, and I think we'll be starting up again in January once I get back off the road. It's been enormous fun. It's a kind of spoken word series. You know, relates to the stuff I've been doing for The Moth. I discovered, and I write about it in At the Stranger's Gate, that the one thing I'm good at is sort of standing up and talking extemporaneously. And they asked me if I would come and sort of talk extemporaneously about great moments in the history of performance. I love great performers. The moment when Leonard Bernstein took over the New York Philharmonic, the moment when Marlon Brando stepped forward. And so I talk for half an hour about those moments. Then we bring on someone who's expert about it. And then we try and bring on a performer who's allied in some way to that moment. They've been huge fun to do. And someday, I think, Richard, I'll try and turn them into a book, you know, a History of the World and 100 Performances, because they're fun to think about. What are the 100 performances that changed the world? We did one about uh, the first performance of Hamlet, which was certainly a performance that changed the world, and what it sounded like and what it looked like. And it was, it was huge fun. So I think I'll, and we're carrying on the series, and it may someday become something more. I think you mentioned um, Brando and Streetcar. Brando and Streetcar, and that was huge fun, because Alec Baldwin was my guest, and Alec Baldwin read, because he was a terrific Stanley Kowalski. And I said to him the night before, I said, would you read for us? And he said, of course, he said, I'll play Stanley. He said, but you've got to play Blanche. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking? He said, no, I'll do a scene with you, but you're going to have to play Blanche. So I had to get up there with Alec Baldwin and do the best Blanche Dubois I possibly could. And as Andrew Bergman, the film director, was watching, he said, she sounds sort of like Dorothy and Tootsie, my Blanche. You know, she, I don't understand why I always depend on the kindness of strangers. So it was the highlight of my thespian career was being Blanche to Alec Baldwin Stanley. The notion of free speech versus free speech for Nazis has been a, a key issue these days. What's your take on that? I wrote a lot about this issue in the context of the Charlie Hebdo massacre in Paris, specifically because there you had a case where people of goodwill were saying they didn't deserve to be killed, but they had published extremely offensive things, Islamophobic things, and we shouldn't therefore honor them. We shouldn't celebrate their deaths, but we shouldn't honor their example. And my feeling is, is what the key distinction we always have to make is between threats of violence and insults to our ideology. All of us have an ideology, and none of us like to have it insulted. I don't like to hear bourgeois liberalism <laughs> insulted, but it, it has every reason to be insulted. Muslims don't like to hear uh, Islam being insulted, but we all have a right to insult Islam in the sense of saying, I think it's a foolish or authoritarian or misogynistic religion. It's completely legitimate. That's how freedom, that's what liberty and freedom of speech means. When it bends over into a threat to your person, the difference between an insult to your ideology and a threat to your person is usually very clear. The problem with neo-Nazis not only is that their ideology is hideous, but they're not insulting someone's ideology, they're threatening other people. When you march with weapons, when you make threats about Jews, those are threats. Th these are not things that are easy to parse out. That's why we have courts and laws, because we have to struggle to distinguish between insults and threats. But I do believe passionately that we can protect our right to insult somebody else's ideology and at the same time protect ourselves against threats to our persons. Uh, the, the other question concerns Islamophobia, which you sort of answer, Islamophobia. Uh, Richard Dawkins was supposed to give a speech through KPFA here, mm -hmm. and he had made some pretty nasty comments about Islam, 
and KPFA canceled the speech. Right. As it turns out, someone else picked it up, <laughs> and, it, and it was at a different location. But there was a lot of talk on Marr, in fact, though KPFA wasn't mentioned by name, about whether KPFA made a right move or a wrong move, with Marr, of course, saying it's free speech, and KPFA responding saying, hey, wait a second, we're the ones sponsoring. Right. Well, here's my feeling about it. We always have to do the moral test by translating it into terms where we're on the line, right? I'm Jewish. I think I can distinguish between attacks, sometimes vociferous attacks, on Judaism as a system of belief that says it's patriarchal, oppressive, trivial, cruel, genocidal at times, if you take the Bible seriously, and anti-Semitism and attacks on Jews. I think we can distinguish between those two things. And someone like Voltaire ripped Judaism apart as a system of belief, but Voltaire is not Hitler. And I think we always have to struggle to make that distinction. I can tolerate any amount of criticism of Judaism as a set of beliefs. I can't tolerate, I can't be expected to tolerate threats to Jews as a group of people set apart. Now, are there moments when you want to say, well, that's, it comes up with Zionism too, right? What's, what are the right. limits of anti-Zionism? You can be an anti-Zionist without being an anti-Semite. And yet, in fact, many anti-Semites are anti-Zionists. There's no bright line. There's no gold standard where you're going to make those distinctions. But that's why we live as citizens, because that's why we have to engage as citizens, because if it were a slot machine, you wouldn't need our minds. But we have to constantly try and make that distinction. Say anything you want about Judaism, but never threaten or insult the lives of Jews. That's the distinction we always have to make. And of course, I think it implies to Islam too. I think Dawkins is sometimes just sloppy in the way he addresses it because he makes it not about the ideology or the ideas. He makes it about the people who hold those ideas. And all ideas are held by people. And the simple truth is the overwhelming number of people, all of us in the world, basically take our ideas from our parents. We don't become Muslims because we're enraptured with an oppressive ideology. We do because our parents are Muslims. We don't become Jews because we suddenly are inflamed with a patriarchal vision, our parents were Jews. And we have to constantly make those distinctions between the ideas and the people who hold those ideas if we're going to make any sense of these questions. Adam Gopnik, in that blurb from your publisher, from Knopf, you said you were four potential books you're working on. Yes. A book about liberalism. Yep. Learning to do things. Yeah, the book about liberalism is my daughter very much wants me to write it, my 17-year-old daughter who's passionate about politics and feels I should get out on the front line. And she even had gave me a title for the book. She said, Dad, you should call it Radical Liberalism, meaning because one of the core be beliefs and something I've written about a lot in the political stuff I've been writing the last few years is that liberalism is not centrism. Liberalism is not centrism. That is, it's properly understood in the mind of a John Stuart Mill or in another way even of Barack Obama it's a way of making radical change happen in the real world, and that's what I want to write about. The book about doing things is a, would be a sort of collection, a bunch of pieces I've written about learning in middle age uh, how to do things I didn't know how to do. I've taught myself to play the piano and draw from life and even to drive. I got my driver's license finally just two years ago. They turned it into a little play here at the Norse Theater, and I, I played myself for one night a year ago. And it would be about the mystery of mastery, how it is we go about mastering things. So that would be the second book. I can't even remember what the other two books are. <laughs> well, there's The Lives of American Artists. Yeah, I've had a contract to do that now since 1990. Don't tell anybody. A Memoir of Your Crazy Family. A memoir of My Crazy Family. That, that's the book I'll write eventually. 
it will be the, the painful one. I have a wonderful family, but like any wonderful family, they're quite nuts. You know, there's six kids, all of them with PhDs except me. I want to call that book Just Us because there's this wonderful line in John Berryman's letters where he writes to his mother, to whom he was unduly attached. He said, is every family crazy or is it just us? And I think the answer is every family is crazy. So I want to write that book eventually. And you just mentioned a fifth book, which is the history of the world in 100 performances. Yes, that would be like a, some sort of coffee table so, book. So uh, let me ask you going back, which one is going to come up next? Do you know yet? I want to write the liberalism book sort of in a hurry. I've been writing a lot about the great liberals, John Stuart Mill and David Hume and Adam Smith and Karl Popper over the last few years. And I'd like to put those ideas together because, as I say, I want to vindicate liberalism certainly against the right, against the autocratic right, but also against the totalitarian left, which seems to me on the rise as well. So I am proudly and, and uh, aggressively, pugnaciously a liberal, not a leftist and certainly not a conservative or a rightist. And I want to show why liberalism was the sanest ideology of the 20th century and why it remains the sanest ideology of the 21st. Well, I'll have you back and, and we can go back and forth on neoliberalism. I, <laughs> I would love that. Well, you know, neo, if I may say just quickly, you see, neoliberalism is a term that's been sort of invented to me, not liberal, because really what it references are the free market apostles of the late 20th century. And I just don't see that as being part of the liberal tradition. It's not even part of Adam Smith's tradition. I wrote a long essay about Adam Smith. Forgive me, but it's just I'm sort of passionate on this subject. And, you know, Adam Smith could not have been clearer about the deficits of the free market. He saw its enormous advantages as a self-organizing system, but he was also utterly clear-headed about why it had to be within the context of civil law. So Adam Smith was not a neoliberal. Can you write about that in The New Yorker, please? I did write about that in The New Yorker. I did write about it really? in The New Yorker. I don't think I used the term neoliberal because it was about five years ago, <laughs> okay. and, I don't, yeah. and I don't think it was as current, but I will revisit that, absolutely. I really will. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>